everybody, and welcome to the Banyan Books and Sound Podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, and I'm joined today by our honoured guest, Mr. Russ Hudson. Now, before I get into his formal introduction, I'll make a few announcements on behalf of Banyan Books. First of all, though we have people joining from everywhere around the world online, I'd like to acknowledge that the physical location of Banyan Books is on the traditional unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. So that includes the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We thank them and their ancestors for allowing us to live on their lands. Uh, also, it's Banyan Books' 50th year in business as an independent bookstore. So just honoring and acknowledging that, celebrating independent bookstores everywhere. And uh, of course, you can go into the store. We're open every day, 11 to 7 at 4th and Dunbar in Kitsilano, Vancouver, or you can order any of our products online if you go to banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. If you go to our website, you can also look up. There's a toll-free number you can call from anywhere in the world and make your orders that way. We ship all over the world. Please support your local independent bookstores. Now on to our guest today. I'm really excited about this one, Mr. Russ Hudson. Over the last three decades, he has established himself as one of the top teachers and developers of the Enneagram personality typology in the world today. He is the co-founder of the Enneagram Institute, as well as a founding director and former vice president of the International Enneagram Association. Mr. Hudson is also a scholar of East Asian culture and religion and of the early developments of Western religion and philosophy. He holds a degree in East Asian studies from Columbia University in New York. Our guest today has co-authored with Don Richard Riso five best-selling books on the Enneagram, including the classic, The Wisdom of the Enneagram and Personality Types. He has just released a new audio training through Sounds True. It's called The Enneagram, Nine Gateways to Presence. If you have the video, you can see I'm holding it up right here. It's a wonderful audio course. I highly recommend it. 13 hours of talks and guided practices from our, our guests today, including guided meditation sessions tailored for each personality type. The Enneagram is an invitation to live beyond self-made boundaries and gain actionable insight into your ongoing challenges, greatest strengths, and highest path of growth. According to Russ, the Enneagram doesn't put you in a box. It shows you the box you unwittingly got stuck in and the way out of it. Ladies and gentlemen, help me in welcoming our guest today, Russ Hudson. Russ, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Ross. <laughs> Good to see you. Russ and, and Ross. Russ, yeah, we're going to have to be very mindful. <laughs> <laughs> name, almost name twins. Uh, anyway, hello, everyone, and thank you for coming by on this Sunday. Uh, so uh, there's probably a lot of questions and some things to explore, but I like to start things off by um, taking a few moments to really deepen our presence, our awareness, our field of uh, listening and receptivity. So 
you know, we used to talk about it in the ways I learned the Enneagram as collecting myself, gathering my attention. Because life, especially nowadays, there's so many things vying for our attention. There's so many stresses, so much stimulation. We have the capacity to refocus our attention. And when we do that, we can receive more understanding. We can receive each other's hearts more. We can feel more together in this time we have. So just take a moment, if you will, if, you, if it feels good, to just take a couple of deeper breaths. They don't have to be exaggerated, just deeper than my habit. can feel luxurious, actually. By giving myself a little wiggle room. And if I just continue with a little deeper, slower, more relaxed breathing, chances are good. Then going to start noticing more sensation. Sensation is a very good friend because sensation can only be in the here and now. Can't be anywhere else. You can think about any time. You can imagine things that don't exist or, and never will. Your emotions can get pushed around by things that happened a long time ago or things that you're afraid might happen in the future or want to have happened in the future. But sensation is of the moment. So as I relax and breathe, I oh so gently, allow myself to notice sensation appearing. Might just start as a few tingles here and there. As I relax and stay with that, those tingles become more specific. And they fill in. And as that occurs, there's a little space from whatever was occupying my attention, whatever I was preoccupied with. There's a little more space in my emotions and in my thoughts. It's like I've come home for a landing. And as I do this, the other interesting thing that often occurs is that I start to notice, let's just call it a field of sensitivity. And that's my heart. There's a kind of openness, sensitivity, a gentleness. This isn't voting for or against anything, just being with whatever arises in my experience, willing 
maybe a bit more than a few moments ago, willing to be here. And there's a kind of kindness that can start to appear in my experience toward myself and everything around me. It's natural for hearts to feel that. Even when they're meeting my resistance, my cynicism, my doubts, they get to be here too. And I just meet them with that sensitivity and kindness because they too have stories to tell. Notice too, how as I'm with that sensitivity and hopefully still breathing, getting, coming back again and again to sensation, noticing sensations of the body, sensations of life. That my mind says, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now I don't have quite so much to do trying to hold the space for everything. And I can return to my natural state, which is a beautiful, crisp, awake receptivity. And a beautiful, open silence. And which maybe new ideas, new understanding, new creativity can appear and arise. And having done this little journey, it could be said that I'm gathering myself together. Now, had you asked me a few moments ago, am I present? I'd probably say yes. And it might've been true in some sense. But if I look at where I was then from now with no judgment, but just seeing it, I can see that I'm more here now than I was then. And perhaps this process can continue. And we don't know what it might reveal. So thank you. And uh, let's see what we want to open ourselves to today. Thank you for that, Russ. Thank you very much. I feel much more present for sure. Now, before we get into some of the specifics about the Enneagram work, I, I'm very curious, and I think our audience will be too, a little bit about the story of how you came to this work, how you discovered the Enneagram and, and how it seems to me like you almost have like this love story with the Enneagram. There's this passion behind it. And what's your story of falling in love with this work? Well, um, you know, Ross, uh, like many stories, a lot of it has to do with meeting people. You know, people uh, end up bringing new understandings to us, new possibilities, like jobs, relationships, everything important is to come through people, right? Well, you know, I got, like a lot of people, I was uh, 
a young adult in the 1970s. And there was a lot of revolutionary new teachings and programs coming out of that time. Uh, people were discovering in a, in a major way some of the Indian traditions, for example, a lot of the Indian teachers were uh, becoming popular. Um, everyone from Satchidananda to Krishnamurti, you know, a lot of range there. Buddhist teachings were coming out. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar was on the radio. It was an interesting time. And, um, you know, I was like everyone else. I had questions and I, come, I came from a, a Christian spiritual background in my upbringing. But I was curious about what these other traditions might have to say. And uh, I went and sat with a lot of teachers and I uh, got to listen to some of those very famous gurus have discourses on various topics. Uh, some of them really stayed with me. But um, at some point I ran into the writings and teachings of a, a teacher who was deceased at that point, And that was George Gurdjieff. And Gurdjieff died in 1949, so long before I was even born. But what he said and what he wrote about really resonated for me in that he talked about the issue is not that people are bad, but that we're asleep. We're asleep to our nature. We're shut down. We don't see who and what we really are. We don't really get what reality is. And I did glimpses of that just from studying science. I'm an Enneagram five, so I was kind of a, a science nut when I was a kid. But I realized even as a child, if we took what we learned from science seriously, so-called common sense would be gone. We don't live in a material world in the way that we fantasize we do. <clears throat> Our senses are designed to notice certain things and not others. But if you took you know, even just high school chemistry or physics or biology, seriously, then what the world is and how it came to be here is so strange and mysterious. So this idea of us being asleep, but that we have the possibility of awakening became very compelling to me. And Gurdjieff had a lot to say about the nature of sleep. Gurdjieff, though, uh, and I will just say that after a few years of hanging out, I found real Gurdjieff groups uh, they don't advertise, and they're they're uh, kind of uh, I wouldn't say secretive exactly, but private. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned from them and with them for quite a number of years. Uh, and at some point during that um, apprenticeship, I ran into the ideas of a man named Oscar Ichazo, uh -huh. <clears throat> who had developed <clears throat> this Enneagram symbol, but talked about it in a different way. Gurdjieff brought the Enneagram symbol to the attention of the modern world back in around the time of the First World War. Mm -hmm. So some people say it's only modern. Well, you know, Gurdjieff was showing it in 1913, so you have to include that at least. But um, Gurdjieff didn't teach it as a typology. He wasn't talking about types of people. It was more a description of certain ways that human consciousness operates, certain laws of the way we perceive things, 
certain ways we're plugged into the universe. Um, it talks about the way how unity and diversity can be here at the same time. That's what the symbol showing. The circle is unity. The triangle is individuality or or individual expression, and the hexad represents dynamism and change. Uh. So it's it's meant to say that if you really know something, then you know it as part of the unity. You see in the moment its very particular expression, and you're seeing that it's it and everything else is in this constant process of becoming and disappearing and change, what the Buddhists call impermanence. So that's how I learned it. <laughs> right. And then Ichazo came out with this idea of the types, and, and I was fascinated. And I later on learned where he got some of those ideas from what inspired him, but I have to give him tremendous credit for really coming up with the, the how these different ideas that he found from ancient Christianity and other sources and Kabbalah from Judaism fit on this symbol. So that just fascinated me and I got very enthused about it because it seemed to me a great gateway for people to go on a deeper dive. Everybody wants to know something about what makes them tick. Everybody kind of likes finding out that someone understands something about their personality. We feel kind of embarrassed and relieved at the same time. Like, wow, somebody gets me. I don't want it. Oh my God. But also oh, thank God. Right. And, and so there's, that's a beautiful portal, but then it, it opens us to the deeper question. Like the quote you said, well, none of this is exactly me. It's not I, but what is? And then we're on a journey. And then there's a lot of knowledge behind the Enneagram that helps us on that journey. And that's the part I've always been interested in. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and the, your, your latest release, this uh, audio course, um, where you're giving these, these talks on each point and all these different aspects you really take it beyond just the, the typology and the title is nine gateways to presence. So each type, each point represents a different way that we can access presence and beingness. What was the inspiration to, to really focus in on that with this latest project? Good question. Well, there's a couple sides to that. One was that when I started working with the Enneagram, I worked with a wonderful man named Don Richard Bisa. And anybody who knows our earlier books knows that I co-authored books with him. But when I met Don, he had been working on his first book and he finally published it. But he'd been studying the Enneagram typology for some, you know, 15 years or something. He, it took him over a decade to write his first book. But he'd been really thinking about it. And he had this idea of the levels of development because he was aware that the whole point of learning it was not just to pigeonhole us, but to look at some trajectory some kind of way of transforming our lives. And Don uh, came from a particularly Christian background. He, he was a, trained as a Jesuit. Oh. So he was looking at it in relation to grace and turning away from things that harm us. So when I came on board, I came from this Gurdjieff background and he definitely wanted to know about that. So we started having these interesting conversations. When I encountered the Enneagram field, there wasn't a lot of conversation about presence, about awareness. It was just 
pick your number and go home. <laughs> and and it, it was a little bit of rubbing people's nose in their, in their neuroses. <laughs> and, uh, and it kind of, frankly, I thought some of the people were in a bit of a power trip about that. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of teaching about how this really originally was a tool for discerning how we lose track of presence and to get specific about it. So that coming from that Gurdjieff background, coming from my spiritual orientation and my science background, my curiosity was how can this typology help people on a journey of awakening? And so that's since I started working with Dawn in 1991, that's been my entire focus. And I've had the great joy of seeing people from around the world, from so many different cultures, have those moments where, you know, the penny drops and they're just like, oh, they, they see past everything they've assumed about themselves. And then I'm, then I realize, okay, I'm happy I took this job. <laughs> yes. I'm very happy too. This is, I found it so helpful as I was telling you before I've spent the last week and a half, just really diving into it and uh, seeing how I want to ask you about, you know, you talk about, there's the, the three types, the, the instinctual, the feeling and the, the thinking types. And you talk about how each type represents a different way that our particular ego structure forms from early childhood development. Can you yes. talk a little bit about the different centers that go with each type and how our ego structure forms around a center? Right. Well, this is where the Enneagram, I think, actually gets more interesting because in one sense, there are these different types of people where there's a certain element of the human experience that's center stage. It's what we lead with. It's how we cope. It's how we handle things. And, and there's a certain part of the human psyche that we are most identified with. Yeah. When we see through that, it also opens up to a kind of spiritual gift that is there when we notice sometimes. Uh, but the, the other side of it is that all of the nine points represent a part of our total humanity. And that's why I had that title for, for the audiobook that basically every one of these types is also a path, a portal. It's a, it's a way that ego relates to something that's beyond ego, a way that our psychological life is rooted in um, what in the Enneagram work we call our essence, our, our spiritual nature, our, our true nature. So the belly, as I was showing in the meditation, gives us our sense of being. It's the I am, the sense of ex the sense of existing, or what Eugene Genlin called the felt sense. And he noted, by the way, that people didn't heal from psychotherapy if the felt sense wasn't included. So the felt sense is being here, and <clears throat> the eight, nine, and one, are, which are the types most associated with the belly, represent different elements of embodiment, actually participating viscerally in the moment. <clears throat> so the eight brings our, our life energy, our gusto, our confidence, our empowerment, our, our ability to be strong when we need to. Uh, the nine is our ability to relax into ourselves and be at home right where we are, 
to land in this total experience right now to be with, and that's a relaxation process. And then the one is about how, when we do so, when we get more into our body, we start to notice when we're in or out of alignment. We start to notice when we're kind of off center, so to speak, or when we're more aligned and tuned in. And then when our body is lined up that way, everything flows. Our life energy is better. Our relaxation is better. Our intelligence is better. And so those three all are working all the time or personality steps in and does its version of all those. We try to be tough instead of alive and confident. We, we try, we tune out and zone out instead of relax. Some people even make that their spirituality. I'm just going to zone out on y'all. I'll be back in a few days. That's not it. And then one is we, we get rigid, you know, but it's, it's like when you learn the one is sort of like when you learn postures in meditation or yoga, when you learn your, your asanas in yoga or, or really any kind of practice, there's a way you find where your body is not, is there's an effort involved, but it's not tense. It's sort of like finding that balance point. So the one you could say the one is about finding balance too. So those three are all belly center. The the heart centers two, three, and four. Um, this is a, a different part of us. Um, it, you could say they're each a kind of intelligence. I've I've said the the belly is intelligence we need to live on planet Earth. We're gonna, it's the part of us that's part of nature. It's also where the instincts can be found or the so-called subtype energies, so self-present, sexual, and social. But that's another whole topic. The, the two, three, and four um, have to do with being present in the heart. And again, as I was mentioning in the, in the centering practice, the heart is where we know who and what we are it's where we taste the totality of the experience that we just landed in through the body. We actually taste it through the heart. And <clears throat> it's the part of us that knows what the truth is. So as we kind of get here and we're embodied, the heart, which is used to being beat up by life and by our, ourselves usually, knocked around constantly, this great sensitivity has gone into hiding because it doesn't have the support of our embodiment. As we get more embodied, the heart can kind of peek out and go, oh, the coast is clear. I could come out and, and be here a little bit more. And then the heart kind of sort of, it's like a flower is it shown in Indian tradition. It's like a lotus that opens and reveals its nature. So the, the two tells us about the part of the heart that knows how we're all connected on a heart level. How we, we are moved, we, we care, we're concerned. We, we move and care and concern toward others. And we wanna meet people for real. We wanna have that heart communion. And it's through that two place, that's what we all have access to. Or on personality level, we get codependent. We're trying to get people to like us and we're doing all the kind of rigmarole human stew to try to not lose our connections or to make connections or to, again, convince people that we're really great people. Mm -hmm. 
I'm, then, I'm, uh, I've identified myself as a two, I think. So that one resonates for me. Oh yeah. It's, it's like, what's so cool about all of them, Ross, is that when you relax the desperate effort, you're already there. Mm-hmm. That's what's so cute. Two, two's a really great example. It's like when I stop trying to connect with you, oh, wow, I am connected with yeah. you already, almost more than I can handle, yeah. right? We all have a project. It's totally like the Wizard of Oz, you know? And, and you, the good witch Glenda tells Dorothy at the end as she gets her guts, her heart, and her brain, right? The three centers. She gets them all, they all get, they find out they really had the right stuff all along. They just didn't know it. And then she just wants to go home. And now that she's taking care of the three of them, she could have gone home all along. But when she asks the good witch Glenda, you know, why didn't you tell me this before? And what does the good witch say? She goes, you wouldn't have believed me. (laughs) So there's a, it's through the, the, multiple experiences of coming back to the real thing and seeing with kindness why we inevitably had to get into these defenses and structures. So there's no blame, no giving ourselves a hard time, just saying, of course you would do that, darling. But now you see, you can kiss that on the forehead and maybe you're ready for a more adult spiritual experience. So three, great example here too. Three is when it's when we're landed in the heart, our life feels valuable and precious and meaningful. We're in touch with the meaning of our life by being in our life. And then whatever we do feels like an act of love. You know, like our, our work is, is an expression of love. Our conversations are expression of love. Everything starts to be just my gift this is really more accurately a gift coming through me to the world. And it feels that way. And it's blissful. It's wonderful. All people are threes know those moments of flow and they're trying to figure out how to get back there. <laughs> yes. That felt so good. I want to get back there. But the, and so threes are people who like to do things like to get things done. They kind of get that we're not here to do nothing that we're embodied in, in existence for expression, for communication, for doing. And that's not wrong. Uh, but the more there's a kind of relaxing into that homeness internally, the more that sense of flow is and meaning is restored. The other thing here is that, you know, when we're not in touch with that, we're, we just all become in our special way, workaholic, always reviewing ourselves, trying to outdo ourselves, trying to be more fabulous, trying to get it right this time, you know, and, and then we're, we're become driven and drive ourselves mad that way. A lot of people have had to confront that during the pandemic because it's removed a lot of our favorite ways of doing that stuff. So we've had to sit with ourselves and find out a thing or two. And the, the, the last one is the four, And the four is about when we're with our heart, we know not only who we are, but what we are. And what we are is, as all the sacred texts, Eastern and Western will tell us, is a magnificent and beautiful mystery. The nature of our 
our soul at rest in the divine, our consciousness dropped in is something you can exactly define it. It's not definable. However, it is feelable. It is knowable. It's knowable through the heart. And we kind of know we're getting closer to that because the world starts to feel more beautiful, mysterious, and intimate. So, you know, those are things that people who are fours are always looking for beauty, intimacy, mystery, that that's what you love if you're a four. And again, the personality version is I'm trying to make myself unique and interesting and different in ways that are very limited compared to the real thing. So they're never satisfying. The other thing to say about the heart is everybody, everybody, everybody has a broken heart. Mm. We all got a broken heart. And to meet each other is in a sense to meet our broken heartedness. And if you really think back at our religious traditions, if you, you know, Buddhism takes that straight on, dealt with in various ways in various uh, yogic and, and Hindu traditions. In the Western tradition, men, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all deal with that pretty straight up, that we're suffering. And the passion of each Enneagram type, which is the root of the personality, is the particular heart suffering of each type. And then there are symptoms that look like bad habits, but they're just the symptoms of a deep pain in the heart that's seeking healing and can only be healed by our reconnection with ourselves, with ourselves as presence, as being. And in if you're of a religious orientation, of course, that is our reunion with God. Mm-hmm. And so the heart, pretty important. Uh, the last three are the five, six, and seven. That's the head types. That's that's uh, my tribe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, the head gets a little bit of short shrift sometimes in uh, some kind of spiritual circles, only modern ones. Uh, you know, I said, well, I follow the Eastern paths and the mind is not important. I said, well, you better tell those Buddhists who wrote libraries of commentary. <laughs> on states of consciousness, all those sutras, were they wasting their time? (laughs) Go listen to the Dalai Lama, not his public talks, but when he's talking to Buddhist practitioners, there's plenty of mind there. Mind is super important for discernment, discrimination, but also realization, which is the punchline, happens in your mind. It's where you see you're not seeing reality as it is. You're seeing some deeper, broader, more magnificent sense of what's what reality is. It affects your heart and your body. But the aha happens in your head center, your mind. So if we throw that out, lots of luck. You'll have some good moods. You'll cheer yourself up. I have long had the theory that people who want to reject the mind do so because they're, they're trying to hide from their pain which you can do, but in the long run, pain's going to have its say, right? As we know. Mm -hmm. Um, So the head center types, when the head is activated, it's, it's, as I said, brings silence, awakeness, vividness. Uh, Our senses wake up. It's pretty cool. 
And it's also the place of recognition, knowing. So the five, which leads us off, is about that. It's seeing what's real, seeing what's true, seeing through appearances, seeing through my assumptions and finding out things are a bit different than what I thought. And that the more awake we are, the more present we are, the more that becomes like an engine. I just keep seeing more and more and more of the nature of reality. It's like a journey of revelation. Five is my home base. And I yes. probably wouldn't be doing this if, if that were not the case, but I'm, I'm speaking from experience. It's, it's kind of, as soon as I know, I never worry anymore when I have to give a talk, I just, <laughs> I know it's going to come and here comes the wave and that's the fun of it. And then I'm discovering something with you, which is always good. Um, so that revelation and knowing, and it, uh, also there's a sense of this beautiful, vast, silent solitude that is the mind space. When we're not present, that turns into needing to be alone so I can hear myself think. And my poor ego mind trying to figure everything out, trying to get the answers without accessing my core of knowing and that you see here's the the trick the head center doesn't light up until i'm present in the body and the heart which i experience as contact hmm. so five tries to avoid contact to try to get away and know stuff it's actually through contact that the the power of gnosis is restored so three, so the, 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 the three of them, that's the five. The six is the next one. Six is awakeness. Like, what are we trying to do? We're trying to wake up. Well, this is the awakeness that we're waking up to. It's the vivid, sensitive recognition of where we are, what's happening both around me and inside me, even sixes in personality are very attentive people. They pay attention to the details. They notice little things as part of the natural gift. So when that's liberated, it's, it's like my own onboard GPS system. It helps me navigate life, helps me make decisions. You know, I'm driving myself crazy. Should I do this? Should I do that? And then get present, get silent, get centered, and the mind just goes, bink, and I know what to do. So it's if five is knowing what's real, what's true, the six is knowing what to do. Mm. How do I move forward in life? How do I navigate reality? So that's pretty important too, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And so there's a journey in the six of learning to trust that that navigation system is operational. Because when I don't, and I'm in, in, in my personality more, I doubt and I overthink and I'm cynical and I'm, I'm, you know, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. Oh, hell, I'll just do this. Right. And it's <clears throat> when, you, when we're in that frame of mind, it feels like life is coming at us hmm. rather than us living our lives and moving into life. Like we're, constantly dealing with life instead of living it. So that's the six and seven is our last stop on the Enneagram choo-choo train. <laughs> seven, <laughs> seven is, uh, and the sevens always go nuts because they, one of their challenges is impatience, <laughs> but they, 
I always tell someone, of course, we save the best for last, right? Of course. <laughs> seven, seven's a, seven is about <clears throat> the head center as its open-endedness, its sense of possibility. It's the state of inner freedom and a kind of joy in the possibilities of existence. How, how exhilarating it is to be alive, to be here, to participate in this world. And seven is at their best know that and live that way the best they can. And they transmit <clears throat> that pot, what I call causeless positivity, right? It's just, it's not, I'm, I don't have a reason. It's not like somebody baked me a cake today. I just feel positive. And it's not defensive because the real positivity actually moves towards suffering. It doesn't avoid it. If you're avoiding suffering, it means you're making the suffering bigger than you or bigger than the positivity and you're scared. So what's really operating is fear. When I'm really landed in my body, heart and my mind opens up this way, we have this positivity to hold, to heal, to transform the suffering of this world. And all the really beautiful sevens I've known that have been on the journey have figured that one out. Mm. <laughs> so it's not about entertaining ourselves or finding interesting things to do. You might still do that and there's nothing wrong with that. But you also know that you have a power to help where it's needed by bringing this positivity. Not in a way of cheering people up, but just reminding them that the lights are still on. And so when we're not so present, the seven personality is just the opposite. I get afraid that of their scary stuff inside me that might overwhelm me, that might be too much. I'll get too depressed. I'll get too sad. I'll get too scared. And so I just am constantly externalizing my attention and try to keep myself engaged and entertained and into interesting stuff as a way to defend against things inside me that might feel overwhelming. I used to say fives are afraid the outside world will overwhelm them. Sevens are afraid the inside world will overwhelm them. And six are kind of both. <laughs> mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you. I just want to, yeah, that, thank you. That, I mean, there's so much to cover and uncover with each type and with the whole system. I just want to take a moment to remind our, our live audience, please, uh, we're going to take time for questions from you uh, at the end. You can type your questions into the Q&A tab. Don't use the chat tab, but the Q&A tab. And uh, we'll get to as many of those questions as we can towards the end of our session. Um, okay, so we've gone around the circle and we've looked at the, the, the basic gist of each type very briefly. Um, what about the wings? How does that, how does the wings work? Yeah, uh, well, wings are fun. I think they're kind of an adaptation of our dominant type. And wings are by definition on either side of our dominant type. So for example, if I'm a three, I get a two or a four wing. I can have a seven wing or a six wing. The other types could have an influence on me, but a wing is specifically uh, on one side or the other. I think that they're just a further adaptation. It's kind of a kind of a spreading out into more of the totality of, of your, your type pattern. So for example, um, I think most people try both wings out when they're little kids. 
but they learn that one of them helps them get their needs met better than the other one. And so they rely on it. And, and wings are more like handedness, you know. I'm left-handed personally, but I use my right hand for a lot of things too. Uh, <clears throat> but you get more ambidextrous as you get older, I think, in terms of wings. Uh, from the point of view that a lot of people, once they hit midlife, when we're getting into the, the, the middle years, um, we tend to start experimenting with the other wing again, trying it out. And most people go through a, a period where they're expanding into the, say, the full range of the possibilities of their Enneagram point. And by including the full range of how it blends with the, the ones on either end. I used to say, if you picture the Enneagram as a circular rainbow, hmm. you know, let's say that, uh, let's say that, uh, you know, three is green, right? Are you, if you go toward uh, two, you're going toward yellow. And if you go toward four, you're going toward blue. So are you like a yellowish spring green or are you a blue green, you know, a, a sort of a turquoise color? Uh, and and th I think that helped people get the sense of it. But after a while, you can sort of play in the different shades of green. Hmm. I like that. Um, so you're basically what you're saying is that as we develop our own personality, our own fullness, we, we start to spread in both directions, not just yeah. towards one wing or the other. Okay. That's, that's yeah. awesome. And, and then of course, we're always, the thing I, I, I found as I listened through your, your program is that just seeing more and more the, how each point, how I identified those those faculties or tendencies within myself. And you, you comment a lot on the need to integrate all of these different aspects. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how we do that? Maybe, I don't know if it's the starting point or not is the inner lines or the inner arrows. Yeah, that, well, that's a good place to begin for most people. I always say, if you think about your type as not your identity, but the point through which you enter the game, hmm. it makes sense. If you don't know where you are, it's hard for me to give you directions. If you don't know where you are, you'll take your limited view as the totality. Once you recognize you're looking from a particular angle, then you have the possibility of realizing there are other angles through which you can experience things. So that's the kind of idea behind it, which goes back to you know ancient teachings. Um, so the inner lines, um, people ask me about this all the time. You can go to the higher or lower end of either of those, depending on where you are in your own type. If you're having a really bad day, you're not going to suddenly jump to the high side of one of those. And if you're, have, if you're really consciously integrating those energies, you're going to do it at a higher level. So they can, it means different things at different levels. But basically, I think of those points as skeleton keys. They're, they're sensitive issues. They're key ingredients that are needed to balance out my own type pattern. And that's not always about a different center because all three centers are in each type. You don't get just one center in a type. I'm a five, but it doesn't mean I only have a head center. I have a heart and a body. 
And I don't have to go to two or eight to get a heart and a body. It's there in five, you know, but eight energy as a five represents confidence, life force, engaging the world. And as a five, that's counter to my contraction and retreat from the world. So it balances me out. And as a five, I tend to be kind of pessimistic and cynical. So seven <laughs> represents positivity and possibility and, and the lightness of being. So that they both are undo my, the fixated nature of my core point. No matter what Enneagram type we are, that would be the case. You know, if it, two, you know, the, the two, I don't want to be like those sad, bitter fours with all their peeves and everything. I'm not like that. Well, I'm sorry you aren't, Shadow. But, <laughs> but to get in touch with the ways you're sad and disappointed is a way of bringing mercy to your heart, is it too? That, that you're loved even if you have unpleasant feelings sometimes. <laughs> and then the eight is like, oh, I can't, those eights are kind of big and selfish and dominating. I don't want to be like that. But it's about empowerment and having your voice and 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 coming to the the sort of reverence for your own sovereign being. You know, so they represent ingredients that we need at each point. And, and there are lessons in each one. And that's the way I like to look at the Enneagram. We put a, a good bit of that into the audio book too. People yeah. always ask about that. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I, you know, you, you, really, you really make it, as you did in the, in the guided practice at the start, you make it so important to bring it back to our direct experience. Yes. And how the, the centers integrate. Can you talk a little bit about how I can... Uh, actualize the highest potential of of my type through the integration of the other centers. For instance, if I'm a if I'm a heart type, how how integrating the other centers helps to strengthen them. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, the answer to that is a little more complex than it might appear because each enneagram type has within it a particular pattern vis-a-vis -vis the centers. So what each type needs is a little different, as you might expect. That's why you could think of each type, again, not as an identity, but a way of customizing a, a most efficient and effective path for transformation. So for example, um, as a five, I tend to identify with the head center and then use my emotional center to make my thoughts feel vivid and juicy and real. And what drops out is my belly center. I don't take care of myself. I don't get around. I don't, I, I don't embody very much. And I tend to contract because I don't feel confidence to be here. But so it would imply, of course, that for me, very important embodiment is very important for me. And particularly that kind of vital life force, I call it contact. I tell fives you need to the sense of contact. That doesn't mean just letting, you know, crazy people hug you. It means <laughs> contact with yourself first. And there's, since there's only one contact, if that happens, you're gonna feel in contact with everything. And so, you know, is you, if in point two, you're identified with heart center. So that's gonna lead, but identifying with a center means it's not free to do what it's there to do because we're trying to make an identity out of it. And then your second center is the body. 
And so if I feel something for somebody, I got to do something for them. I got to say something to them. It has to instantly go into action. It also means I mix up instinct stuff with heart stuff. Mm. So it's good that we take care of each other and feed each other and all that. But it, that's not what love is. <laughs> See, they get mushed together. But what's absent then? Head center. And it doesn't mean I'm not smart. I've known some twos who were super smart. I say geniuses. One of my main mentors was a two. But there's a journey of the two to value clarity, discernment, thinking. It helps me separate out what's from my heart and what's from my instincts. It helps me see who I'm really with and not project things onto people. Right. So all of them are a little different that way. And I think we go into that in the audio book, too. But that there's uh, I've written about that. And it's uh, there's but there are specific formulas. No matter which type we are, though, guess which centers we need? All three. <laughs> Actually, there are seven centers, but that's that's another topic. Uh, and we all need to. Uh, embody all of it. I used to always ask people, why would you want to be a third of a person? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'll again remind our audience, I think I'll do one more question and then we'll get to some of our audience questions here. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the wake up call. Okay. Wake up call was something that Don Riso and I came up with years ago. Again, in the idea of the original sense, uh, we in the wisdom of the Enneagram, we called this catching yourself in the act. That it's one thing to retroactively look back at some habit or that I've done and try to understand it. It's another thing to notice the habit while I'm doing it, to come to it from presence, to meet it as it's actually occurring energetically emotionally right now what's actually happening under the hood what's what's going on there so the wake-up calls were things that everybody does if they are that enneagram type and they're not pathological they're they're just normal ego things that everybody does but if you could be aware of them they become an alarm clock that's why we call them a wake-up call um Since if I really am that type, I'll do this a lot. Every time I do it, it becomes a reminder to come back to presence. And so we get present more often every day. Excuse me. And and the siren. Good old New York. Um, So, for example, um, I'll give a couple of examples. Um, The nine, for example, is a a wake-up call is sort of stepping out of the and saying it doesn't matter, whatever, whatever you guys want. I'm I'm cool with it, but I'm not cool with it. (laughs) I just do that. I don't want the conflict. I don't want to deal with the hassle. I don't want to deal with people's mucky muck. So I just disengage and be agreeable. But then later on, I get angry that I, I signed up for something I didn't want. But a lot of things happen physiologically, emotionally, and mentally every time I do that, where I'm trying to, quote, keep the peace by not voting, not engaging, not 
letting what I want or need be known. Uh, the, I'll use your, your example again, the two, the two, the wake up call, I call it leaning in. It's where I lose my own center of gravity. See, if I'm in my center of gravity, that's when I meet you. When I'm with my heart, then I know your heart. But my habit from my personality structure is to energetically be over there with you. And all my energy attention is on you, not with me. So even if you thought I was the cat's meow, gingerbread cake, you know, <laughs> I won't feel it because I'm my attention's over there. So it 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 becomes an addictive cycle. But if as a two, <clears throat> I see that oh, I'm leaning in with my friend. Come back in so I can really meet them and they can meet me. And and it's just little practices like that. The other cool thing about wake up calls, they're invisible. No one but you will know that you're doing them. <laughs> That's really great. That's awesome. Okay, uh, and that leaning in, I, 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 as a two, I did, I notice I do it quite often, especially in this work. I'm interviewing someone, I'll lean right in, and I realize, okay, I need to be, come back and be, yeah, blind and present. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes we do it physically. Sometimes we just even do it with our eyes. You know, it, it gets subtle, but to just feel how when I'm landed in me, that's when I'm really with you, and that's counterintuitive from the way we're all conditioned. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to get to some audience questions here and I see we've got quite a few. So let me see what, what we can do here. Um, I'll have to do quick answers. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. And yeah, bang, bang. I know. And, and I'm sorry, everybody, if we don't get to all of them, but we'll do our best. And uh, a shout out to Jacob Steele, our producer, who's always working to bring all of these events together. And he's in the background curating the questions and sending them to me. Um, first question is from Sean. Uh, he asked, can you speak about the instinctual subtypes? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a gigantic topic. Uh, uh, I do whole retreats just on that. Um, short answer, the belly center has three components or actually in it's considered three centers. That's how we get from three to six, you know, or five rather, five centers. And then there's a higher emotional, higher uh, intellectual center. But the the instincts are our self-preservation drive, uh, usually associated with the undercarriage of the body. And it's about survival, well-being, health, safety, uh, resources, stuff like that. Uh, the second is the sexual center, which is located traditionally in the gonads and the reproductive organs. Some of my colleagues trying to make this more palatable to uh, delicate sensitivities call it intimacy or one-on-one. -on -one. This is wrong. Intimacy and one-on-one -on -one are heart issues. Mm -hmm. This is your sexual energy, which is, Im how important is it? Well, none of us would be here without it. And as some of you may know, some of the uh, yogic and tantric traditions of the traditions do a lot of work around sexual energy. So it's a lot of spiritual traditions know you have to do something to come to terms with how you use that energy and what you use it for. It's also about creativity and activation, you know, being turned on by something, right? So the third is uh, the social, 
also sometimes called the adaptation center. And it's, it, this is again, confused with the sexual, this is the, where we connect, the instinct to connect and to care for. And the origins of that were parenting. Hmm. The first animals on the planet and still most of them don't parent. They lay eggs, the babies are born, they're off. Or the babies have to run so the parents don't eat them. That's most life on the planet. But at a certain stage, as organisms got more complicated, the animals had to learn to care for the babies. And that's an instinct, right? If, if you hear a baby crying and you're a mom or a dad, there, it, there's no hesitation. You know, it's, it's, it's an instinctual response. And then that translates into uh, the way we care for and connect with others. And we humans would not have survived without that instinct. So everybody's got all three. Nobody's only one of them. And we tend to prioritize them though. We, there's some that get more of our time and energy and some less. And so you learn, again, not that one of these is your identity, but you learn how to have a more creative and dynamic balance with those three of them. So you're not short changing any different part of your life because they're all vital for having a good life. Wonderful. Thanks. I know that's a quick answer for a, a deep question. A very big question. Yeah. The uh, next question is from Marie. She asks, uh, and we were talking a bit about this before we started the session. What are your thoughts on tri-type theory? Um, well, tri-type is very popular these days. Uh, one of the main proponents of it is, is my friend, uh, Catherine Chernick Faber. And we've known each other for many, many years. Um, I think it's potentially an interesting line of work. Uh, I understand why people want to learn it because just seeing the basics of a type doesn't cover every individual thing about us. But I caution people that the point of the Enneagram is not to get a perfect narcissistic mirroring of who you believe you are. The purpose of the Enneagram is to pierce through your self-concepts so you can see what's underlying them what's really been motivating you and come back home to a deeper sense of self. So tri-type can be used that way. And uh, I'm in ongoing conversation with Catherine about how we could step up the game in terms of that. But a lot of people just get carried away trying to get more and more and more detailed descriptions of their ego structure rather than do the work of finding out what they are underneath. And the other caution I have is it's a lens you can wear and look at things that way, just like the, the wings are a lens or the instincts are a lens. But another lens, as I've already said, each type already has in it all three centers in a certain pattern. So if you're hung up on tri-type, you, you're not necessarily going to look at that part of it. Mm -hmm. So I just say, use it as another important piece of information, which it certainly can be, um, and, and really consider how can this knowledge leverage my presence and my inner development. Now you're on to something. Excellent. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. And just I did, in case people don't know what it is, it just means you, you pick one of the three types in each of the centers. So you might like if I'm a five, <clears throat> I'm a four in the heart center and I'm an eight in the belly center. So I'm a five, four, eight, tri-type. Awesome. Thank you. That actually, uh, there was a question I wanted to ask you about <clears throat> the 
the World Enneagram community and how you guys go about uh, coming to conclusions together, sharing research together, and sort of creating cohesive views on these things? Well, you know, some of us talk. <laughs> some of us are friends for a long time. Uh, some people talk more often and some less so. There are differences of theory. I'd say the, the field has grown up a lot. <clears throat> In the early days, it was much more contentious and territorial. But I think most of the major teachers involved in it now have cordial relations, at least. And some of us have long and abiding friendships. And we like to get together and talk and say, whoa, you see it that way. And then a lot of times we see how our language and our angles can open up new ideas, new possibilities, which is always fun. Excellent. Okay, we've got a, we've got a couple of questions from people about <clears throat> the most accurate test. People saying, uh, um, I've taken four different tests. They've given me four different answers. Um, Val says, every test I've taken identifies me as an eight, but my heart is in the seven. How do you explain this? So I guess the first part is, what, what's the best test or methodology to approach this? And then the other is, for Val, she's an eight, and, but she feels she's a seven. How do you address that? Well, okay. <clears throat> first off, even though I made one of the probably the most popular Enneagram tests. I always have a caveat about tests. Um, tests are a piece of information. They're a piece of evidence. They're not a final say about who you are. It has to make sense to you. It has to be congruent. I've, I, <clears throat> I made with Don Richard Riso the READY test, the R-H-E-T-I. <clears throat> and one of the things we did was we made it so there's like a bar graph that you get as the results. It's not just what type are you, but you, if, if, for example, you had zero or only two points in, in the nine, that means something. It means you don't know how to relax, for one thing. <laughs> uh, if, if you had no seven, you'd be kind of have a hard time being positive. You see what I'm saying? So it that gives you a certain kind of fingerprint, which can be interesting. But I think they're best as a launching pad for self-reflection, conversations with people that you know. When I went about designing this test years ago, Don Richard Riso came to me with the basic idea of, of a format for the test. I, and I worked with it. I would have picked a different format, but that's what we did. Um, the thing is, if you study psychometrics, the study of psychological testing. They will tell you, as any academic who has studied psychometrics will know, that getting, you know, accuracy, even into the high 80 percent, 80 is very rare, and 90% or above is fiction. Oh. If people make these claims, but anybody who's, it's not just the Enneagram, it's any kind of psychological test. There's a lot of reasons. People hear different words, different ways, they have different contexts, different connections with different terms. Um, it gets even more hopeless when you're trying to translate, right? Uh, but the other thing is the test cannot be more accurate than your self-knowledge. So it actually takes a picture of how you see yourself at a certain time 
And so it's sort of a more accurate thing to say, on the day that I took the test, I was seeing myself this way. And sometimes, uh, let's say you're up against a, a big challenge in your life and you're battling to, to, to deal with something. Well, eight might come up high on your test, even if you're not an eight. You're, you just had a relationship breakup. You're feeling kind of sad and, and wondering where you want to go next. Well, four might come up, even though you're not a four. So again, if you took the tests over time, there should be some consistency of something coming up higher. But I just say, you know, in the end, the Enneagram was not meant to just give you a number and go home. The number is the booby prize. The number is the beginning of a process of self-awareness, self-examination, or what we call in this work, self-observation. Trying to find your type is the point, not finding it. To find out what your type is and is, is not obvious. It lives several layers below where most people are seeing themselves. And it isn't everything about you. It is, it is your favorite way to cope with things. It's your favorite way to check out, but it's also connected to your greatest talent or capacity. But it isn't everything and no single thing could tell you everything about you. If you had that map, it would be the same size as the territory, it would be a useless map. But it's not meant to be a final say about you. It's meant to be a starting place for you to go on a lifelong journey of self-knowledge and understanding. That's how I hold it. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's very illuminating. Thank you. Uh, Gert has asked us, um, and I know the answer to this, but I know you'll expand on it because you touch on it a bit um, in your latest release as well. Gert asked, do knowing our types help in relationship? Well, sure. Um, Again, even more so if you've, you're cultivating a little self-awareness and presence, uh, because if we don't, we're just going to do what we do. <laughs> just there won't be if we don't build that muscle in us that can choose something other than our habitual behaviors, our habitual behaviors are going to win the day more often than not. Right. So I think that. Um, Yes, knowing your partner's predilections can teach you different ways of communicating with them. I have another whole teaching about conflict resolution and how each type is a certain way of approaching conflicts and misunderstandings. But if those don't match, we miss each other, even though we're both trying to help the relationship. So learning your other partner's love language, we use that term from other things these days, Learning what they're needing might be different from what I'm needing. So, uh, you know, as a five, a uh, mistake people make with me too often is trying too hard. And then I'm just looking at them like kind of, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? <laughs> uh, is there some way out of here? You know, <laughs> And it becomes obvious to me that that's not about me. It's about something in you that, you know, but some other types of something different. You know, we all bring different gifts. So I think twofold. One is you start to appreciate the gifts that your partner's bringing. You're not trying to convert them to you, 
which would be kind of what would be the point of having two of me. One of me is tough enough, really. <laughs> but instead of trying to convert your partner to be the same as you, you start to love and appreciate what they are bringing to the picnic. And you get more clear about some of the things that you don't bring or that you bring too much of and you get to a better balance so that there's a better dance. The other thing I always tell people is if you're waiting for your partner to change first, you might wait a long time. So the person who's more present and aware of the dynamics of the relationship has the responsibility to drop the defenses and the hidden agendas and just show up. And it's always better to assume that's me. Hmm. That's really good advice. Thank you. Uh, a question. Um, this is, I mean, this is really, I, I'll recommend to Mara to, to get this new program, the Enneagram Nine Gateways to Presence, because it's really the essence, I think, of what you're presenting. She says, I heard a talk where you described the Enneagram as revealing what distracts you from connecting to the divine. This intrigues me and rings true. I'm a four. Can you say more about that? Sure. When Oscar Chazo put the Enneagram together, the basis of the, the Enneagram points were the passions. And the passions come from the desert fathers and mothers of Egypt, the first Christian monastics in the world, where these things were discovered not by them going around typing each other. They were trying to live their lives in ongoing prayer, contemplation, and meditation. And they started to notice what distracted them. So, for example, the first one they noticed was gluttony, the passion of the seven. So let's just imagine you're, you're 18 years old. You have a really spiritual sensibility, but you've just left your home, your mom and dad, your village, your maybe boyfriend or girlfriend. And here you are now in a monastery in a teeny tiny room, very simple, eating simple food. You might start thinking, oh, if only I was at home, they're probably having a good meal right now. I wish I was playing with my friends and everything. And so you're thinking, if I was somewhere else, it would be better. That's gluttony. And that's and so they were looking at what happened to people trying to keep their focus on the journey. So that was the original sense of it. So for four exactly, um, I, it, it's always looking in the wrong place for something what we're looking for is real and good but we're looking in the wrong place so the four is looking for this beauty and identity and intimacy which are qualities of the divine it's a way we experience our communion with god right and if we but the four has the habit of looking in a certain layer of emotions for that and I'm right, it's in the heart. I'm, I'm basically in the right direction, but on the personality level, I can't go deep enough to find what I'm looking for. So what I find are my historic emotions, my moods, my reactions, uh, my, my narratives and stories. And it all has a place on an ego level, but it doesn't pay off in terms of my spiritual yearning. So until I learn to be present, to be present with that yearning, to hold it, to be with it, starts to bring the return to the deeper heart and the place where what I'm looking for can be found. So that's an example. Perfect, thank you. 
I think we just have time for one more audience question. And then I've got one more question I'd like to ask you as well, Russ. Mm -hmm. um, so this is from Julie. She says, I think this is a really good question. She says, I have a friend who has been studying and incorporating the Enneagram in her life for more than 20 years. Yeah. I have felt very uncomfortable with what I perceive as using the Enneagram as a kind of hierarchy and to box people in. She right. claims I'm a six. So perhaps my perception is based on paranoid sixness. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, I always think everything is a two-sided sword. Like sixes have that suspicion. I always say sixes kick the tires in the used car lot, right? I want to make sure I'm not buying a lemon. And there's, and it's sort of, but that just, it's just the ego trying to open to the discrimination. Like in a sixth place, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to be fooled. I don't want to waste years of my precious life <clears throat> going down blind alleys. <clears throat> and I tend to see when people are fooling themselves. Now, that doesn't mean I've figured out the answers. I may well not have, but I don't want to buy, just buy into something. Sixes are the natural skeptics. But when I find something good, then I'm very defend, defended about that because it took me so long to get it. As for your friend, I can't say because I don't know. I'll just say this. Just studying the Enneagram typology won't do very much for you. The Enneagram typology is meant to go with practice. It's meant to go with ongoing psychological and spiritual inner work. It's meant to go with us working out our conflicts, our narcissism, our defensiveness. It's meant to go with our growing, our capacity to land where we are, to open that compassionate heart and to be in that quiet, crisp mind. I know a lot of people who've been studying this for many years, but they've never taken the leap. They've never taken it where the material's pointing. They just become kind of experts in quotes of a, a description of, of personality traits, which has a place, but it isn't, that's not what's compelling. When I'm looking for Enneagram teachers, I'm looking for people who don't, teach from their fixation, but could actually get out of the box. So if I'm a five and I'm just reciting facts to you, that's kind of boring and dead. But if I have some heart and embodiment and energy and I'm figuring out new things as a five, I know I'm really in the flow of teaching. But if I'm teaching in a two way, a three way, a four way, a seven way, a nine way, whatever, eight way, and I'm just doing it in a fixated way, it shows me that I haven't really done the work. I don't really understand it yet. If I've understood it, it manifests in my being. <clears throat> but if you can think of any religious tradition or path where, <laughs> where everybody got it and is transformed by it, I wanna know about it because I haven't encountered that yet. It's always the case that some people get serious and are willing to pay the price to actually use these tools in a way that will open up their heart and their consciousness and other people, they're just not ready yet. So I, I've learned it's not my business to worry about that because you never know when somebody might blossom. You just never know.
And some people I thought, oh man, that person is just so in it. And that, and that's my judgment. And then one day they just angels are speaking through them. And I'm like, wow, wow. So, you know, I just hold out hope for your friend and we, and, and yeah, just the Enneagram without inner work ain't much. Thank you. I have one final question for you before we close. I'm very curious to know, I mean, this, this work with the Enneagram has, has obviously evolved a lot just yeah. in, in the time you've been working with it. What do you see as the future evolution or where is this work going? Well, I think the popularization of it will no doubt continue. And so more and more people are going to know about that. And, you know, which is fine because some of those people are going to want to take the deeper dive. Some of those people are going to really want to step up to the plate. So I have a couple of answers. One of them is that I think the Enneagram is one of a variety of things that have come into the world to help us step out of our habitual orientations and ways of living and give us a fighting chance of opening to the necessary adaptations that are going to be required for us in the coming century, long beyond my time on the earth. This will still be important. But if as human societies, we're learning ways to support each other doing that, then we have a fighting chance. That's my core love reason and why I keep doing it. Um, the other reason in terms of just for the Enneagram field, I think there's going to be more scientific studies and backup of how it plugs into various medical paradigms and the biology of it. I'm sure there is one. Um, I think it's getting used more extensively in coaching for leadership and life coaching and things like that. That's just grown by leaps and bounds. And um, I also think, and here's my other hope, I think it's an ingredient <clears throat> that is opening up and reawakening a deeper spirituality in our religious traditions. And I really think that, again, for the journey ahead, having a good uh, community of people drawing strength from those traditions and bringing out the most beautiful elements of them and a little kiss on the forehead and goodbye to some of the dysfunctional things that grow up in any religion or system. Human beings are involved. What do you expect? Um, <clears throat> but that there is this renaissance of a, a kind of spirituality. I think it's going to help people make wiser decisions, choices for their families, and ways to adapt their lifestyles to the almost certainly changing conditions that our globe is going to be going through in the coming decades. So I'd say that. Well, well said. Thank you so much, Russ Hudson. Um, his website is russhudson.com, R-U-S-S-H-U-D-S-O-N.com. You can go there and see the different programs he's offering. He works with organizations as well, leads workshops at different places around the world. Uh, his different books and everything are on there. You can also go to our website and purchase any of his books or his latest audio program, The Enneagram, Nine Gateways to Presence. It's out from Sounds True. Our website is banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. 
Ross Hudson, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ross. It was a lot of fun. It's good to meet you. And, uh, and thanks to everybody who came and joined us on this Sunday afternoon or morning or wherever it is where you are. Uh, so thank you from my heart. listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound.